If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. Hey, everybody. It's Erin. Okay, so we have recorded such an amazing show for you. We sat down with Dr. Victoria Ferris, who honestly gave us the radical truth. And when we have these conversations, radical truth is so necessary. No sugarcoating. And we didn't get any of that for this episode. This is a CE eligible episode. Um, So I'm going to give you the first code right off the bat. It is babies. So if you are listening to this and you want CEs for this show, type babies in the first spot. All right. I'm excited. This is such a, like, again, one of my favorite episodes. I think that not no shade to like any of the past, you know, guests that we've had, but for real, like this one, I think it's just the honest truth is kind of just laid out there. So um, I'm really excited for everybody to hear it. Roll it. All right, everybody, welcome to today's episode. We are joined today uh, by Dr. Victoria Ferris. So welcome. Call you Victoria, Dr. Ferris. What do do you want? (laughs) Victoria good? Oh, please. Victoria is always good. Excellent. Um, So why don't you give us like a little bit of introduction about yourself? Tell us kind of like the work you do, maybe some background on your education, whatever you want to share with the listeners. Okay, great. I always feel like intros are the hardest part. Um, let's see. I please. It is awkward. Uh, Victoria is great. Uh, I am a New Yorker, born and raised. I live most of my life in and around New York City area. Um, I think that matters because I talk kind of fast and um, I wear a lot of black, but you can't see that right now. And actually, I'm not wearing black for once in my life, so I guess it's irrelevant. Um, I have worked primarily in higher education and with um, in the arts. And uh, so my mom used to joke that I went to college and I liked it so much I never wanted to leave. And I started running residence halls and then working in student life and student support services. Um, ultimately I served as a Dean and worked in student conduct and student support in the Dean of students office. And throughout my career, I saw the ways that inequities showed up on the campuses I worked in. Um, and I think we talked a lot about the inequities amongst students and how students were served and experienced our campuses. But increasingly, I also saw how that played out amongst my colleagues and staff. Um, and so my interest just sort of continued to grow and my commitment continued to grow in what it looks like to 
um, disrupt those types of inequities and also to engage with them. And so uh, a couple of years ago, I guess now it's been about four or five years, I decided to pursue my doctorate. And uh, that was in part because um, higher education loves a hierarchy and we love to value people's worth based on the letters after their names. Um, and so I was kind of told that it was time for me to get the degree if I wanted to get the next job. And so I went in with that in mind, which I, I think is relevant because um, I was very much playing by the rules of the game, um, which is uh, all tied to <laughs> racial inequities and um, white supremacy culture, but we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Um, and so anyway, I decided to focus my research on um, kind of allyship and what that means and what it looks like. And the more research I did, the more I found that in like the, the research literature, allyship was often described and defined by white people. And I don't think that's uh, for us to de define as, as it relates to racial um, uh, equity. And so the research that I conducted was uh, from the perspectives of people of color who worked in higher education, um, what, what racism, number one, what it looked like and how it manifested in higher education and education workspaces and what uh, they wish their white colleagues and supervisors would do to disrupt it. And so um, through that research, I have created a model um, for effective allyship or accompliceship or change agents. I use those words uh, interchangeably in some ways because I think they mean slightly different things. Um, but we can talk about the word allyship and, and why I think it can be a tricky word if you want to. Um, but once I uh, finished that, that research, I realized that what I had was bigger than um, my job in one place. And I felt that um, the participants in my study invested in me so profoundly that it called me to find ways to um, almost be like a conduit of that message into other as many spaces as possible. And I committed to reinvest all of the energy that was invested in me by getting in front of as many people and in as many places to talk about um, microaggressions and racism and how white people can be more effective allies and, and accomplices and change agents. And so for the last two years, I've worked full time uh, at, with my own business, I, Ferris Consulting, and I go... Um, I go into workspaces, or I used to pre-COVID-19. Now I go into people's living rooms via, um, you know, the internet and Zoom or whatever. Uh, but I work in education, education adjacent, high, um, nonprofit spaces, spaces that I think where we think there's a lot of. We I think we all think we're talking the talk and walking the walk, right? Like I think we think about education as liberal and open-minded and development focused and people focused, and there's so much racism. Um, and I think the same thing is really true for nonprofits. And um, and so those are the spaces that I primarily work in. And I'm excited to go into any space to talk about this message because I think it's that important. Um, and I also uh, host courses and I do coaching and, um, in this time where people are kind of dealing with the unknown and working from home, I've been just doing more virtual webinars and workshops and really whatever ways to engage with folks. I run a book club. Um, my goal is to be so relentlessly focused on engaging other white people about how we can more effectively disrupt racism and disrupt our own racism that we can kind of collectively see change. 
Um, and so I try to find lots of different ways to do that. <laughs> so um, I use she, her pronouns and identify as a queer, white, cisgender woman. Um, and I have a variety of other privileged identities, but I think those are sort of my primary identities that it's important to know in, in the beginning of the conversation. Thank you so much for that. Um, I feel like just from your introduction alone, we can see that before you came on, you know, you told me a little bit about yourself and obviously I knew a little bit about you by reading, but I hear activism strong all through your introduction and it, and Aaron and I have had the conversation on this show and we've talked about, you know, the activity that is required. And so just hearing the name of your model disrupt, disrupt, I can hear the activeness of it. Um, And when thinking about allies versus accomplice versus uh, change agents. Aaron, we discussed on this show before, you know, those differences to us and my um, viewpoint of allyship is very different from accomplice behavior. Accomplice behavior to me is, is more active. And I would love to hear um, your perspective on the differences between those words. And I know you use allyship in your work. And so there may or may not be a full difference between the two, but that's just, um, those are my relational frames. When I think about accomplices, I think about the folks that are um, putting their bodies on the line, that are talking to other folks that are from their privileged classes, that are actually, you know, voting in alignment with the interests for uh, minority groups. And that is what an accomplice speaks to me. When I think of allyship, I think of the folks who, you know, I, I love all people. I think you're great and you have a friend in me. And I think, you know, very much more inactive, a passive stance, so to speak. And so um, change agent also is interchangeable with uh, accomplice to me, very active as well. That person specifically um, and, you know, very diligently works to change systems. And so, yeah, I would love to hear your um, viewpoint on those three words. Yeah, thank you. That's such a great question. Um, and I, I'm, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I think I feel similarly. I, I think... Um, I like to give real talk, real, uh, my sister jokes about me being like, um, true. What does she say? She always says something like, um, real talk with Dr. Ferris or something. Um, but, um, you're the truth teller. Yeah. I I mean, I, a philosophy that I have just as a frame is like, is that the truth is love in action. And I think that, um, I think that we, especially as white people are not often seeing or appreciating or understanding or, or receiving the truth. We get told this like really whitewashed version of things that lets us believe a story that isn't real. And so um, I am just going to give you real talk right here, but I think of it as like an investment of love. Um, but I, I think allyship is feel good white people talk. Like I think um, when I, like, when I think of myself as an ally, it was a way that I would like pat myself on the back for doing like, not a whole lot. Um, and, and so I, um, take my lead always, um, from communities of color, but most, most specifically, my philosophy is to follow black and indigenous women and, um, femmes and, um, and follow trans folks of color. Um, and what I hear from communities of color and from black women specifically is like, we don't want your allyship. We want your accompliship. We want you in it with us. Um, Brittany Packnett, um, I heard her talk about this uh, uh, several times, but um, 
which really shaped my thinking around it, um, which I think accompliship is action. I, I think exactly what you just said, um, Denisha, like if there's not action in your allyship, it's just like feel good nonsense. It's not allyship. Um, and so I think of accomplices as also putting your bodies on the line and whether that means like physically, I have like, you know, been arrested protesting and I, and because of my privileged body, I think that's a way that I can, um, demonstrate accomplishment and allyship. Um, but it doesn't just mean that. I think it also means leveraging spaces that I have access to because of my whiteness and utilizing every opportunity to be a a space to not allow racist behaviors, um, at ad, racist attitudes, racist jokes, or other forms of oppression. Also, not not just race. Um, but I think that we, as white folks, think about allyship and accompliship when we're in mixed spaces and when there's someone, a person of color, who can see our work and sort of it, we get that moment of like feeling like we did a good job. Um, but if you're not, if you're not um, engaging. In spaces, I don't think that you are an ally or an accomplice. Um, if you're not sort of relentlessly committing to the work, the opt-in and opt-out, I think is a privilege. So to me, an accomplice is somebody who is, um, you know, entrenched in the work beyond um, when it's convenient or when they when it feels good. I think accomplices um, take consequences for their behaviors and their actions. Um, and I, I think the only person who can decide if somebody is an accomplice or an ally or a change agent is the person um, who's kind of in, in the fight next to you. So like, I, I often say that there, for, for, there are plenty of people who have said to me, like, you're an accomplice, like, thank you for being in this with me. And there are plenty of others who are like, I don't know you, like, I, or I don't, or that's not enough. Like what my barometer is of an accomplice isn't what that is, right? Or what you're doing. And I think um, it's really important to remember that this is just not a self-proclaimed title. Like I don't get to decide I'm an ally or an accomplice. Um, somebody else may say that to me because of what they see and, and like my actions, um, but it's also active and it doesn't, you don't just get it. It's not like you get the title. Like I got my EDD and now like no one can ever take that away from me. Like I don't ever have to read another book and I'm still gonna be a doctor. But the same isn't true for an ally or an accomplice. It's a relentless everyday, all the time action. Um, in the same way as that, like I think, not the same ways, but in similar ways to the fact that racism is an all the time, every day, always action. Like if I'm opting in and out, that is privilege. That's not accomplishment. So those are just some of my things. But I, I think ally is a way that makes us kind of just feel good. Mm hmm. Um, so a little backstory before you came on the show, I, I had to give myself a little reminder because the way that white whiteness works um, and white supremacy is that especially as a person of color, um, it seems a lot that white folks get to go into spaces and they will give you the very feel good answer that sounds like, you know, once again, I love all people or I believe that we should all have the same rights. And a lot of times that is enough, unfortunately, because, you know, people of color are expected to accept the breadcrumbs. So it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just so happy that you don't hate me. And that's the bare minimum um, that we expect from folks in a system set up like ours. And so I had to like remind myself, I didn't know what this conversation was fully going to be like. I read your work, but I haven't seen you speak. And so it was like a reminder not to prop up whiteness that, you know, it's, we, we do have a right to hold 
folks accountable to the system that is in place and to not just be okay with the peanuts that are given like, yeah, you know, I, I love talking about diversity because I just believe all people um, should be free. And so that's not enough. I love the fact that you said, but I do want to um, give you the kudos because um, you know, Aaron and I were having a conversation about decolonization versus diversity right before you got on the podcast this morning. And there is such a difference. The work that we're doing is not feel good. Like we are here to change things. And so um, I love what you said about the truth is love in action. Um, to make this like behavior analytic a little bit, I just want to like tact some of the things that I was hearing in your responses. Um, you said that, you know, white folks have been given a story um, and they believe one that isn't real. And so just thinking about diffusion and being fused with these stories of um, being taught from a very young age, what's better, what's not, you know, we're putting all these frames in reference to like who, um, who is better than who's worse than um, in terms of like culture, we look at racial differences, skin tone differences, like all of those stories are there. And at some point we're going to have to be able to diffuse from them. Um, and, but the reinforcers are there as well for folks to not really have to do the work when you go into a space and you go into a space, maybe it's whether around other white folks or whether it's around people of color and they, and they give you those kudos for the bare minimum. It's like, Oh, look, I get to, I get to seem like a good person because we all do believe we're great people, regardless of the behaviors that we engage in. It could be the worst behaviors in the world. And we'll still turn around and say that we are great people. Um, but getting those, those um, discrete moments of reinforcement from uh, individuals, for just doing bare minimum, um, that's that's likely to just allow us to think that we're on the right track regardless. Um, and I just, I guess the last part of this and something that I heard is, you know, you were talking about the ongoing action of it. And so what happens when we start to create um, a value around equity, right? A value around disrupting the system is that, it's never ceasing that at any moment that you're going to be able to track your behavior, say, is this in alignment with actually dismantling the, the largest system or is it not? And so um, being able to then choose the direction that you want to go. So um, I heard a lot in your response and um, yeah, Aaron, did you have anything that you wanted to say? I, yeah, it kind of coming off. So, all right. So I was reading about culture um, for class and I have this book that I like will write thoughts down in and it's separate from like notes that I keep for class. The book is actually called Half-Assed Ideas. And it's like this, you know, just like thoughts. But what I wrote down, I was talking about culture and cultural evolution and cultural practices and how those shift over time. And I, for like the survival of the group um, in general. And it says that what it was saying was that it, for cultural practices to to change or for culture to evolve those, like if these things are harmful, then we need to re-examine to determine if they serve the long-term, if they're useful for the long-term like welfare of a culture, right? And so I started writing down because I'm, I, I'm getting pissed as I'm reading this and I'm like, but what if the dominant culture has all that power? What if they hold all of the reinforcers and access to all of those reinforcers? And then, so you're saying, okay, re-examine all that. Well, what about their bias? What about their stories? What about all these things that they're fused with? And then, okay, now we have people that are challenging that, but they're, um, you know, they're dealing with extreme amounts of like uh, oppression and internalized oppression, minority stress and all that. And it's like, 
how do we change that? And it's funny, um, Victoria, because, you know, listening to you talk over the past couple of weeks and, um, you know, I'm attending the, the, the workshop that you're doing, but I wrote down, I was like, there's something to the people who want to disrupt the system. And the word like disrupt is actually in the notes because I think there's true value to people who want to see that change joining, not just like you're saying allyship, like Woo, wave my little like rainbow flag or post like Black Lives Matter or uh, like go out and run 2.23 miles on Friday and then go back off into um, happy world. I don't have to worry about my safety when I go run, but here I'm going to take my picture and hashtag this. And then I do nothing after that. And so, um, but I think that like, that's, you know what I, I don't know. I'm starting to like rant on these podcasts. I like, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, it's like, angry. <laughs> seriously, no, I'm pissed. Like I am, I'm pissed. Like it's, but it's like those people who are saying they want to do that, but they're not. And they're, it's like, give me a pat on the back because I went out and I hashtagged and I ran 2.23 miles and I stand with all these people. It's, 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 it's crap. It's, it's fake. It's, you know, anyway, and rant <laughs> um, real fast. We want to give the first password for like the, for the CE, right? All right, y'all. So the first uh, password, if you're collecting the CEs for this episode is going to be strong Island. Our um, presenter today, Dr. Ferris is from New York and she represents long Island. So if you're collecting CEs, go ahead and write down strong Island in the first box. Okay. Explain for me. You just said Long Island, but now you're saying Strong Island. Where did that come from? Explain that. Victoria, you can tell me like what that means. Oh, um, when I hear Strong Island, I, real talk, I just think about like like white frat boy types um, who like to <laughs> call Strong Island, like Long Island, Strong Island and go like buff up at the gym. Um, so it's a little, a little kind of... Uh, I think a play on the stereotypes about Long Island. And so I'm here for it. And also I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, it is You're definitely good. everything. <laughs> it's, it's real. It also, Victoria, okay. did it register? Um, Strong Island. No, never mind. I was thinking about, I was thinking about a natural disaster after, what was that? Not Katrina. Um, Hurricane um, Sandy. Hurricane Sandy. Uh -huh. um, there's a frame that I'm pulling up from there. Was that another reason why it was called Strong Island as well? Because of the I, recovery effort? Yeah, I think it got pulled in there, like Long Island Strong or Strong Island. And, you know, I mean, we we really, we really love where we live. And sometimes we get a little big about it. <laughs> it's all good. Long Island's cool. Yeah, you know, what was jumping out to me while I was listening to both of you talk was accountability. Um, and I think that um, I think that there has to be accountability in the work. Um, I often say that if nobody has told you, if nobody's given you the feedback that you have, have caused harm, um, it doesn't mean that you haven't caused harm. It probably means that you're not in community with people where they feel that you can be number one, trusted to give that feedback or number two, that you have the kind of rapport and relationship to, to be able to say that. Um, and, and I think that um, if there's no accountability in the work, then, then it, how do you know it even matters? And so, you know, Aaron, you were just talking about the, the run with mod. And I mean, I could rant on this like all flipping day. Um, 
but but I think we have to make clear distinctions in in all of this. I mean, you, you were talking about histories and who gets to tell stories, and like I take my kids to the Natural History Museum, and we get in front of each scene, and I ask them, "Who do you think told this story? Who's represented in this story?" and who gets to tell stories and what would it look like if somebody different told the story and that's not just like it started when we were looking at and and the natural history museum has this um in new york has this uh like panorama i don't know what the, the exhibits are called but and it's essentially the like native americans and the pilgrims and it's supposed to be this like unity thing that's like so offensive and racist but what i appreciate is what they did is instead of taking it down they filled the glass with like all the critiques of what's wrong with it and how it reflects a dominant message and how like from what the the clothing that the Native Americans are wearing and the indigenous peoples are wearing um, and why that's not accurate and why it's offensive and like for all it like kind of layers through. And, and on one hand, I was like, this is awesome. And literally you would have seen me and my kids like sitting on the floor, reading each line and talking about each part of the, like, I'm this mom. My kids are like, do we have to do this again? Um, but I think we have to be relentless about the truth. And I, I think it, it, we have to do that with our students, with our kids, with each other, with our parents, with our grandparents. We have to be relentless about the truth. We have to be asking whose story is this? Who's, who benefits from this story? How do we know it's true? Why do I believe this story over this story? I mean, in any example where we see these like horrific lynchings and murders of um, black men, but of, of people of color across the board, um, there becomes this narrative about like, well, what was he doing and what was he wearing and was he dangerous and was he this? And I'm like, why aren't we asking the same questions about the white guys with the guns? Or, or the people with the guns, because they're also not always white. You don't have to be white to uphold white supremacy and anti-blackness and anti-black violence, which is a, a separate conversation for a separate day, um, perhaps. But um, yes, and I'm ready to have that conversation. I would be here for it whenever you want to. Um, but I think it's a complex conversation. And I worry sometimes about how white people then absolve themselves from the racist because they're like, well, see, you can be racist too. And I'm like, that doesn't make me less racist. It just means that racism is wildly pervasive. Um, so I, I sometimes like worry, you know, white people love to flip back to like black on black crime or like to point out when the police officer wasn't a white person and as if that changes the role that white people play in white supremacy. Um, but we're masters at deflection. I mean, we're just masters at it. But I think that there has to be like relentless questioning and openness to seeing the truth and, and self-reflection, like interrogating our own assumptions about, again, why one story, one person's story is more believable than another's story and why that is and who I, whose stories I value and who I struggle to believe and listen to. And, um, you know, the way these videos keep unfolding with this um, Ahmaud Arbery case is mind boggling. Like who gives a fuck? what the guy was doing. Who gives a fuck? I don't care if he actually burglarized somebody's home. He did not deserve to die in the street. He, he you know, a, a, a no individual gets to be a, 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 you know, the judge, jury, persecutor, all the things in one. That's not the way our country is supposed to work, even though it is the way that it was designed. Um, but I think we, we the, who's, who is it that wants to know what this guy was doing first? It's white people. Want, white people want to make sense of it, but there's no sense to be made. The sense is 
that racism lets white people believe that we can be the judge and jury and and hold people accountable to our own values and beliefs. If we spent half as much time interrogating our own beliefs as we spent trying to dig up videos of innocent black people or even black people who have committed crimes to try to make sense of their murders, I mean, everything would be different. Like, focus on you. Stop trying to figure out what this guy was doing. I rant too, Erin. Um, I was so excited. <laughs> Seriously. <But laughs> there has to be accountability also. Like there has to be, we have to be in spaces where someone can say, like, I, I loved what you said, Denisha, about like not propping up whiteness. Um, like, no, like the bar is so low that we hand out cookies for like barely being decent. And then we prop it up and people think that that white people start to think that that's the bar. And I'm like, no, that's not the bar. Uh, the bar is justice mm -hmm. and liberation and equity, right? But I think that accountability is essential. So, yes, I felt like that rant. I mean, that rant is our show. So welcome. Um, <laughs> I'm not the only person ranting on this show anymore. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And one of the things is like, there's no... I feel like when it comes to racism and one being able to try to make sense of, oh, look, this person of color did this or, oh, look, this black person did that. There is not like folks aren't keying into like contextual differences. Right. And and, and we don't really understand uh, nuances. And, and when I say we, I just mean like larger society as a whole um, that this world has been set up in one particular way. I say this a lot, but like everyone drank the Kool-Aid. So yeah, you're going to see folks of color that are acting in alignment with their own oppression. You're going to see folks of any minority uh, class operating in alignment with their own oppression. And, and that's because we were taught the same things. And so, um, you know, considering that I would love to, you know, sit down and have another conversation uh, just on that piece, the internalized oppression piece. Um, and it's some, you know, Aaron and I have briefly gone over on the show, but it's so important to be able to even consider the differences between those two. And then while, because you said it, and just for any folks listening that might've been, well, well, what about black on black crime does not exist in the way that folks who try to make um, their arguments, um, uh, makes sense. And so there is a such thing as community violence. White folks commit the most crimes against white people. Black folks commit the most crimes against black people. Crimes are committed as a method of convenience and proximity. So of course you're going to see that if you put the statistics up, you're going to see that. Yeah. Like I said, the majority of crimes committed against each other are folks that looks like that look like themselves. So to, to bring that in the argument, um, which is done, well, number one, as a racist tool to kind of once again pin Black folks as aggressive or put them in their place. Um, but it's just, it's just, you know, um, ideologically, like, false. Um, are ideologically skewed, I should say that. Um, I, have, I have a question. So, too, I and I don't know if this falls in line with this, this conversation, but if you look at how... Um, people who commit violent acts like murder, let's say, and let's say they're like adolescents, right? Adolescent males. And if you look at like white adolescent males who go and commit murders and then black adolescent males who may engage in the same crime, the perspective on that and what is focused on, one is focused on like 
criminal background and violence and that the others focused on like mental health and we need to like help them and like say that I don't know is that is that just something that I'm seeing as like this perspective that's completely different or is that something that you all see too yes yes and and I would say it like look at it from all angles like there is so much research about kids and who gets diagnosed in which ways, right? Like mm -hmm. that um, black children are far more likely to be diagnosed with emotional um, uh, emotional disorders. I, I don't know the best language here, so I just wanna frame that out. Right. This is not my area of expertise, so please correct me here where I'm, I'm misstepping. But, um, but we're so aware that if he were brown or black, how differently he would be treated at school, right? My kid gets sent to the social worker. I get called in to talk about what's going on. They see his humanity that like having parents who are divorced or like life is hard and having big feelings and not knowing how to make sense of them. But sometimes like my kid's behavior is just straight up not acceptable. And I am like, if he were brown or black, what would, even in second and third grade, how would the school be responding to him? Right. And um, and I see my, my kids go to a school that's pretty diverse. And when I'm in the classroom, I notice where are the teachers assigning the seats, you know, and I, I ask my kids, like, when you sit on the carpet, do you decide where you sit? No, the teacher says. And I'm like, interesting. All the brown children were in the back. All the brown children were in the back. Right. Who gets their hand raised? Like ju you just have to start to notice it's not only in the criminal justice system. It's in preschool. It's in the supermarket. It's in when I go into a store and I get asked, do I want to open up a credit card and save? And do I have a coupon? Whereas a black woman gets asked for an ID to go with her credit card. Right. The assumption is that I have good enough credit and access to funds to be worthy and deserving of this extra discount and a credit card. But you're probably using a fake card and it's not yours. Right. There's the subtleties here are like so ingrained that we stop kind of noticing them all because we don't want to. But they're all there. And absolutely disproportionately, the criminal justice system will uh, lock up and put away and punish harshly black and brown children. And, and it's not just boys. Um, black girls are disproportionately disciplined in schools also. There's research there that shows, um, and, and black women. Um, but I think about that, um, the case from Stanford, the rape case, where the judge said, like, this young, this boy's future is too bright, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the we 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 prop up the potential of white children as being worthy of excusing their behavior without ever considering the potential and future of black children. They just don't get the same um, opportunity to that. So that is the part of privilege that folks don't see, um, because if you're a person that is living your life within the system, and to me, it's like you know. As a person, as a black person, I, I see that privilege very clearly because my life, my learning history is different where I've had to take notice to those different things. You talked earlier about, you know, black children being diagnosed with um, certain disorders like ODD, ADHD, um, first and foremost over other folks from, you know, the school. We talk about the criminal justice system, but that really starts in school, as you mentioned earlier, um, Victoria, that, you know, we're starting to see differences in race 
from the very beginning when it comes to the diagnoses, when it comes to who gets expelled, who gets suspended, who really gets taken care of in the school system and those small nuances. And this is why like awareness is key because if you are going to do the work, being aware of your behavior is probably gonna help you day to day, moment to moment, shift some of this stuff that occurs in our larger system. When it comes to just deciding where someone sits, like you are actually like, you could be likely helping them in their educational route. Um, And so those small discrete behaviors that we engage in, like can make a world of a difference. So I'm glad um, that you were able to see, uh, say that, but we don't notice or some folks, you know, have a hard time noticing those privileges, especially if I'm like, oh, you know, my life has been hard. No one gave me anything. And it's like, well, imagine that, you know, times whatever for folks of color um, in this world. And so uh, one of the things that I, I've had to make sure to say over time is like, we talk a lot about the American system, but racism, racism is pervasive. It's like one of my favorite sayings, but, um, but that the pervasiveness of that is the world, you know, like racism doesn't just exist in America. It exists all over, but from our lens and our vantage point, I'm being me being American. um, A lot of times when I speak, I can speak mostly about this, but it's important for us to remember that this has infected our world um, and it's so far reaching than we ever give it credit to. It shows up at every moment, at every second, it could be showing up um, in your environment. So it, it is so insidious and in every aspect of our society. I, yes, I completely agree. And, you know, I often say that the more privilege a person has, the harder it is to recognize because that privilege um, gives that part of the privilege is the opportunity to not have to have any witness to any of it. Right. Um, And, and I think that I'm underscoring the point because I think that like, I, I know that, like, I don't know what it, it, what it's like to exist in a black body. I know what I hear. And I think I have a high level of empathy. And and I think I understand each day more than I understood the day before. And I've never lived that experience. But I have lived the experience of being a feminine presenting cisgender white woman of a socioeconomic like middle class uh, with an education and access to museums and this and that and that and and being able to go about the world with such a level of comfort that I, I know how easy it is to exist there and not have to think about any of the things. And it doesn't mean that there isn't challenge to your point. Like things are, are hard sometimes, but it's still like nothing compares to what it's like to live on the flip side of that marginalization and to be subjugated in every aspect of your life, right? Um, I've been thinking about like this COVID-19 pandemic. And so to give context, I live in, you know, the epicenter of, the crisis in the United States, right? Like my county is second only to New York City. And so we, you know, I have, it's just been, it's hit very close to home literally and figuratively. And so um, I've been thinking about the ways that my it's impacted my life, right? So going to the grocery store is a thing I've never had to really think about. And now it's, a I have to map it out because um, I, there's a wait to get in 
Um, you know, it's, it requires a few hours. I need a mask. I need to have gloves. I need to have um, this. I need to think about what I need so I can get in and get out. I need to think about the layout of the store so I'm not like dawdling and spending more time and I'm, I'm being mindful of who I'm getting close to and who's getting close to me and my space and proximity, right? And these are all things. And I'm like, God, it feels exhausting. Like, I don't even know how to check email after going to the grocery store because I feel like I used every ounce of my energy just managing all those thoughts about like what was happening around me. Pause. That is actually what it's like to be black in America all the time, like all the time. And not even when you leave your home, because more and more the stories are coming out just the other day, a black woman was shot by the cops in her own house. You're not even safe at home. You can't go for a run in your neighborhood. You, like, I, I mean, I think that we can use this opportunity where people with privilege are being inconvenienced and uncomfortable for the first time. We can use that as an opportunity to get a window into the lives of other people if we're willing to like look beyond our own perspective enough. But like, I think about just how hard this is right now. And I'm like, this is everyday life all the time for so many people. And add on, you know, I was talking to um, a, a friend of mine who identifies, she's a black woman, but she's masculine presenting queer. And um, we were on the phone, she's in her car. And she's like, all right, I'm about to put my mask on to go into the grocery store. And she was like, like side heavy. And she just said, you know, like, you know, the, these white people can't see me smile at them from behind this mask. So it's real hard for me to like show them that I'm safe and not dangerous now. Right. Like, I don't have to think about that when I put my mask on. I just think about how I don't want to be sick and I don't want my kids to get sick and I don't want people I love to die from this thing. I still don't have to think about my safety in that regard of like people perceiving me to be a threat because I have a mask on. And at the same time, I'm ranting here just one more minute. At the same time, right, there, there are so many, um, there's repercussions. People, Black people have been kicked out of stores, shot, arrested, murdered for having bandanas and masks on outside of COVID. And now in New York, disproportionately, um, we're seeing um, black and brown people being arrested and ticketed and assaulted by the police in black communities for not having masks on, while at the same time, the same police force is walking through white neighborhoods handing out masks, right? The, the disparities are, it's plain as day. So anyone who says that they can't see it, I call bullshit. You're not, you don't want to see it. And I think that that's another place where we need to be accountable. Stop saying you don't understand or you don't know, or you didn't realize because you just didn't want to, because it's right in front of you. And if you can find out when J. Crew has their next sale, you can find out how racism is existing. Like it's, it's actually easier to see the latter than to find the discount codes for your favorite like shopping space. But I just call bullshit on that. Like, you don't want to know. You don't want to see because it disrupts the bubble. And I think yeah. we have to be accountable to that. Absolutely. So it's it's uh, interesting that when you were going through the way that you felt to go to the store, in my mind, I had the thought, and welcome to my life. You know what I mean? Just to have the fact, just to think about the fact that there are a lot of components uh, related to Black folks to people of color in this world, there's a difference, you know, obviously what we know about the history of America, there's a difference for Black folks um, in some way. And, and one, being able to acknowledge that there's that difference um, from our experience. And 
yeah, there are talks that we have to have with ourselves. Um, there, there's a lot of planning that goes into moving about freely, but not freely in this world. Um, and one on it's, I feel like, you know, over time, black folks have been put in a position where we have to shift our behaviors in order to survive. The conversation stays on us. Um, once again, on the things that you can do to make it home um, from your day. And then, like you said, in relation to, you know, Breonna Taylor, Atiana Jefferson, the two Black women who were gunned down in their home. Breonna um, Taylor was this weekend. Atiana Jefferson happened um, earlier uh, last year, I believe, or late last year. Um, but being in your homes are not safe. My point is to say that Black folks, time after time, have been taught the recipe um, or the steps that they need to engage in to stay alive. And it's for our survival, right? That we have to do those things. Your friend mentioned like, oh, you know, they can't see my smile to know that, you know, I'm not a threat to them. That's a behavior that we're sh we've shifted. And one of the most difficult parts about this conversation and one of the parts that I hate about this conversation is that piece that Black people are constantly having to shift their own behavior. I do believe that Black people can go jogging. Black people can relax in the comfort of their home. Black people can ask for help after being in a car crash. Black people can have a cell phone. Black people can sell cigarettes. But... We have to put the ownership back on who creates the world for us. It's white folks, racist folks who will take any opportunity to see black people as a threat. White supremacy that can't see a person running in a neighborhood without assuming that they've done some type of criminal behavior. You know, racist folks who believe that they own everything, including your home and everything that you bought inside of it. And so it's really important for me that we believe that we can win you know rule governed behavior is so important because that's why we're shifting our behavior because if i do believe that i can't go running i'm going to make caveats to that and and we do it as a mechanism of survival but that has an impact as well and, and when we continue to move the conversation where we're focusing black folks and their behavioral change versus focusing on white folks in the um and and their need to change the system, um, I think that we're losing something in the in that thread. And so, like remembering that racists are a threat to black bodies, like racism is a threat to black bodies, not black living, right? So racism is that threat, not black people. And as a black person, I live on this earth as I choose. And I want my people to know that we can live on this earth as we so choose. And, you know, we don't have to hide away to the shadows because we fear savagery from white supremacy or racism. That's not a life that I want to live. That's not a life that I want to lead or teach my children to live in fear. Um, but I want to teach them to hold white people and whiteness, racism, white supremacy, hold, hold folks accountable that need to be held accountable because we're not causing our deaths. That's not what's happening. You know, it's the system. It's the folks that uphold the system. And so at any point in time, at any point of the conversation, just, you know, remembering to, to bring that back front and center for me is, is, is going to be important as I continue to, you know, keep breath in my body. Yes, yes. I'm like over here nodding so hard. Thank you. I hear you. And yes, like, when people, when white people try to deflect, this is where like, you want to know as a white person, what you can do, bring it back, be the, be relentless and recentering back. 
well, what about black on black crime? We can have a conversation about that the, the another time, but I want to talk about why a white person thinks X, why a white person thinks that they can decide whether somebody's innocent or guilty in, in a moment's notice. Or uh, what about this? Well, great, we can talk about that another day, but right now we're talking about this. Keep bringing it back because the way that racism and white supremacy works is through that. It's, it's, a, it's like a, sh a shape shifter. It's like sand. It's going to find the crevice and it's going to keep wiggling its way through if we let it. But when we don't let it and we keep bringing it back, we force ourselves and each other to like really look at it, like fucking look at it and stop trying to deflect. And it should hurt to look at and it should be painful to look at and it should feel shitty to look at. And not because I'm saying we should use shame. I don't think shame is an effective tool for anything. And if we can look at a case like this or have a conversation like this and not feel anything, it is that is an, um, an example of the trauma that white people experience from a white supremacist system. Because that, that's not natural. Like it is not natural for us to look at a murder and not have like feelings about that person as another human, right? And so I think there has to be room, number one, to talk about like that there it's there can be space for white people to hurt and to to feel grief about the things that we thought were true and to grieve the world that we thought it was and we can do that but we can't just sit in it forever number one and we don't like that's not for anybody to take care of but us we can take care of that for ourselves and for each other but that's not the reason to stop showing up like I think we hit hit those uncomfortable feelings and then we let them be the reason that we we opt out um, but we have to like, relentlessly be focused on white supremacy and why that is the problem. And like, also, I want to know, like, what what makes you think like we see all these white women calling the cops on like uh, the black child selling water and the barbecue and the this like like mind your own fucking business. Like also, if nothing else, just like mind yes. your business. But why do you think that's your business? Why do you feel entitled to know what other people are doing? And I think these are all the questions we need to ask ourselves and ask each other and maybe not ask them in the way I'm saying it right now because they'll probably just like hang up or walk away. But like really, like when somebody's saying, but what about this? Bring it back, bring it back. Don't, don't entertain their argument. Like to me, I'm not going to get into the like the black hole of the what ifs and like what aboutism and like black on black crime. I want to talk about white. I want to talk about white terrorism. We can talk about that another day. Right now, we're talking about white terrorism right now, and just keep bringing it back in the same way you would with a kid who's learning their spelling words and doesn't want to do it. You have to keep bringing it back. Also, I know that example from personal experience. I hate practicing <laughs> spelling words. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was another thing I was thinking, I, I lost it. Um, I'm sure it'll come back, but, um, oh, I know what it is. I want to talk just for a second specifically about white women, because, um, I think that uh, white women are the gatekeepers to the white male patriarchy and white male supremacy and, um, and are like, getting into everybody else's business while simultaneously saying we mind our business and we don't want to cause any trouble is like the the behavior that's some of the most destructive behavior i think in our society i want to name that in the aubrey um armory case um i'm sorry i said that wrong in um ahmed arbery case 
um, it was a white woman DA who initially told the cops to back off and not to arrest the, the murderers, the men who um, murdered him um, because of proximity. And so when we talk about like internalized um, oppression and internalized dominance, you know, white women will simultaneously take to the streets about how we're marginalized. Um, and I'm one of them. So there's no shade here. Like I've been in the streets with the Women's March and with other women fighting for women's um, equity. But while we're simultaneously trying to keep our proximity to power by um, enabling white male patriarchal society, because we don't actually want the consequences. Right. So we keep our white male boss happy and don't push too many buttons and then take to the streets about how we want equal pay. But we're not actually disrupting when like there's not a single person of color interviewed for a job or there's not a single person of color at any like table that we're sitting at any discussion, any right. Or the folks of color are you we know, you know, because you're sitting in the room when they're getting offered jobs at 30 percent or 50 percent of this less salary than you just offered to the white person down the hall for the same job. You know, all that shit is happening and you're going to take to the streets about your own rights, but you're going to enable all of that other behavior. And I think that white women, we have to have a real reckoning with the fact that just because we're victims doesn't also mean that we're perpetrators. And we are absolutely upholding a violent system that hurts other people. And we are never going to experience our own liberation until we recognize that we aren't free until everybody else is free. And the best thing we could do is get to the back of the line and follow black and indigenous women who actually know what it looks like to lead liberation. That's my rant there. Yes, rant. Um, so you just mentioned Women's March, which our listeners know that I too um, have done my work with Women's March. And, uh, you, you know, one of the things that Linda Sarsour says, um, you know, I'm not, she works knowing that she's not free until Black and Indigenous folks are free. She's a radical um, Palestinian Muslim American woman. And um, just to be able to take that stance in your activism. So going with that, our next word is activist. Um, and thank you for sharing your modality of activism so far has been with the Women's March. And we can chat about that offline too, because we obviously have overlapped at some point. Yeah, I would imagine so. I, and I just want to say that like, I, I think two things have to be true when, when I talk about the Women's March, that um, I everything I've learned about activism and about what it means to center the most marginalized, I have learned from the Women's March and the leaders of the Women's March. And um, I have participated in marches that upheld white, uh, white women and white feminism and white dominance and supremacy in ways that that are counter to that. And I and I think that it's just the challenge that comes with an organization that's that big. And um, and so I I want to be clear that I will critique some of the some of the you know the women's march like the the pink fucking pussy hats and like some of the shit yeah. that people who participate in the women's march how they exist. Um, I will be critical of and simultaneously I everything I've learned I I, um, I got it was a Linda Sarsour email from the the Women's March listserv that got me um, to up my activism and and really they taught me about nonviolent civil disobedience um, you know I I have learned so much and Linda and Tamika Mallory um, and, uh, you know, Carmen, Carmen. Prez, they are just extraordinary leaders. 
Um, and I have, I have learned more from them than I can put into words and so many other women from the women's March, quite frankly. Um, a lot of the state leaders are folks that I know well, and, um, it's an extraordinary organization. So I just want to be not just throw shade, but also, yeah. um, give credit where credit's due. And, you know, one other thing I would add, uh, not that's separate, but that a learning that I got from, um, and I, again, I think this was, um, also Linda, but I'm not certain. I think it's a collective belief in the movement is that we don't throw anyone away. Mm -hmm. And, um, and sometimes I think that is the hardest principle to stand by. Um, because it's really easy to like unfollow, block, stop being friends with, don't talk to, or even like, di like separating from family. Like I know people have had really painful separations from members of their family over like Trump's election or, um, beliefs and, and even the most painful of those separations, um, still, it's still reflective of a system that says that people are disposable. And if we really believe that nobody is disposable, then we're saying that nobody is disposable. And I think that, um, I think that that's a really hard place to exist in when, um, you know, there's such violence and, and hate and, um, you know, I feel such rage against that. Um, but I, I have a friend who's um, a prison abolitionist who was talking about the murder and the arrest of of the murderers the other day and, and just said, like, I'm not here to celebrate um, punishment or to celebrate an arrest because if I fundamentally don't believe in the system of jails and prisons, then, it, then I don't believe in them. And it doesn't change because they're, they're like, because it's these guys. I, the system, like the system hurts everybody who's in it, even if it hurts them like disproportionately. And I, and I, some of the biggest learnings I've had are from activists like that, who center that level of integrity and mission into their work in such a way that pushes me that back to the accountability to really wrestle with why I could both say like, uh, you know, all of this stuff about freedom and like lock them up, they should rot in jail or this person, I, you know, I wish this person would you know, whatever bad thing would happen to them. And I think that um, back to what, why it resonates with me though, is I think that white folks love to throw people away. We love to throw people away and we throw other white people away when they don't align with our values. And, and that is also an act of privilege. And it's an act of, um, of like separation where I decide that I am better or different or like, um, you know, like you just don't know yet. And I know, which is also like exceptionalism and it, and it's like just tied into all these like really harmful values and beliefs. And, and I think that I think a lot about what it means to not throw anyone away and what it means to reconcile with harm and to have space to, um, like kind of create community and um, have some restorative practices to restore trust and community even when um, quote unquote bad things happen. And I think that um, white people, we need to do better at not just discarding the hard conversations or the people we think are never gonna listen, but really like finding a new way, keep finding a new approach because people of color don't have the option to decide like, well, this is all just too hard to fight. Um, you know, certainly I, I think we all have moments and, and lots of folks have moments, but like, there's no opting in or opting out. And so white people, we need to be relentless in that. Like we need to find a different approach. If this isn't working, then what will and, and kind of stick, stick with it. 
but I, it's just another one that's really stuck with me about not throwing people away and what that really means. So can we, can we like dive into that like a little bit more and talk about maybe like, what is the difference between, um, like, what's the difference between not throwing people away or like, you would talk about like cancel culture or things like that, um, versus setting boundaries. Like what are things I'm willing to do and not willing to do? Um, you know, because they're, they're just truly toxic people out there, the ones that are just not willing to hear um, what, you know, and whether it's about race, whether it's about um, gender identity, whatever it is. And so, um, and I'm not trying to fl- flip it to talking about gender, so to speak, but like for me, there are certain things that are hard lines and there are certain things that aren't. And here's my, here's my line. When you're willing to come across that line, then we'll talk. It's never canceling anybody. Um, there's always forgiveness. There's always that. If if I didn't have that, I would never have anybody in my life, right? Um, and so, but where's that? Like, how do you set boundaries with those people and not can't cancel, not forget? Because you're right, they're not disposable. Well, I think you just said it, and and I think the important distinction here is like I think that there's a a real important huge difference between um, people who harm me personally and um, and people who are harmful around identities that I don't hold or occupy, right? And so um, so I think that if if uh, if people who are outwardly homophobic, like I don't need to keep you in proximity to me because it's not safe. It's harmful. It's violent. And so I think, um, boundaries to protect, um, ourselves and our own identities are wildly important. I I think boundaries are always important. Um, but I think, I, I think there has to be a difference though, between, um, uh, so I recently was at a, in a conversation, um, with somebody that, um, started using really harmful language about immigrants um, and was talking about, um, you know, like kind of spewing off like Fox News, like talking points about how Trump has helped um, the black community and, uh, and you know, why immigrants like the, the um, bans and the changes to asylum and all these things are important. But, um, but he wasn't using undocumented or immigrants. He was using really harmful language that I'm not going to repeat. Um, and it made me feel sick. Like it, it's words that to me are tied to hate that are, are words that are just are violent and harmful. And it made me feel sick. But also he wasn't talking about me. Right. And so I think there has to be a difference between like, I don't, I didn't like any single thing about it, but also I could engage in a conversation where we made a little bit of headway and he heard me a little bit. And then the next time I saw him, we had another conversation. Right. And I think that um, what we have to do is divorce the, the, the separate the difference between um, uncomfortable and harmful. And was it uncomfortable for that conversation where accusatory language was being used? Yes. Was it uncomfortable to be sitting with somebody who had beliefs that I think are so harmful and dangerous and violent? Yes. Did it, was it harmful or dangerous to me? No. And I was keenly aware we were in a restaurant of who was coming around. And so I was noticing when um, the person who I perceived to be brown was like clearing the table while we were eating and we were having this dialogue. And I was wondering whether it was violent for them, right? And so I was trying to simultaneously shift and say, could we use this word instead of this word and whatever, and being mindful of all of those things. But there's a difference between like, I don't like this conversation, doesn't feel good. And I don't like people who talk like this. And you are actively like 
um, marginalizing my humanity. And and uh, no, I don't think we we need to tolerate that. And I, I but but I what I heard you say is like when you're able to get here, you'll be welcomed. You but so you're not like canceled, like dead forever. You don't exist. You're you're just setting a boundary about what is and isn't okay behavior. And I think that that's important. That's you know, that's how we like live. <laughs> Yeah, I like that I, what you're um, saying, like harmful versus and having to do even better. Um, self as context gives us a, a way to be able um, to kind of conceptualize that as, you know, uh, in an act way, in a very behavior analytic way. Um, this quote says one of the strengths of the ability of settler colonial theory is that it gives a way for non-Indigenous people to have a better account of themselves. And uh, again, that's what I was talking about with context and kind of learning our history and letting our history inform our current context. Um, our The self that we are now um, has been shaped by the selves of the past. Uh, I know that's kind of weird and mystical, but I really think it, it's relevant when it comes to talking about these kinds of things. The next act, act core principle is cognitive diffusion, which I also think is really interesting with this type of work because it's super easy to get fused to thoughts that come about as a result of the shame that we're feeling um, and get stuck there and not allow ourselves to move beyond that. Um, so I think that ACT gives us a great tool to defuse ourselves from those kinds of thoughts. Uh, the quote that I picked for this one says, learning to transform relationships in this way and to transform self-understandings and thinking and feeling patterns of patterns of settler common sense. Um, settler common sense, I think is kind of silly, which is why I'm laughing. Uh, but it's the everyday feelings, sentiments, uh, and practices that normalize the disappearance of indigenous peoples. And it's not silly when we talk about um, the definition of it. Uh, but I think that this uh, are things like what Kendi calls racist abuse, which is um, the language that he uses to describe microaggression. Um, and just kind of the ways that we slowly uh, allow the erasure of this community. Finally, the, the last um, act process that I'd like to talk about is acceptance, uh, which is making room for unpleasant feelings, sensations, urges, and other private experiences. Again, something in the context of this work uh, that requires a lot of willingness um, and a lot of ability to be able to sit with discomfort. Um, the quote that I chosen here for a decolonization practice is decolonization for settlers entails sacrifice or giving up power and privilege. And I like to think of power here as also control of your experience when it comes to this work, trying to control the outcome and how you're going to feel and what you're going to go through when you're engaging with this kind of history and rhetoric is a futile effort, in my opinion. Um, this type of work takes a level of acceptance in the sense that it's continually going to be uncomfortable and you just have to get used to that discomfort. And I keep bringing up that word because I think that's what so many people run from um, and why people avoid this. Um, and that's uh, my, my final question is uh, when structural, cultural, historical and institutionalized racism is confronted emotional and cultural issues will service, uh, surface, excuse me. Uh, and then I say, what then are we to do with them? And I think ACT provides us a really, really great tool to confront those emotional and cultural issues for both settlers um, 
and uh, the populations that have been exploited. Um, I donate on a rolling basis uh, to this organization called Seeding Sovereignty. Um, it's kind of like a Netflix subscription I like to think of. Right now, they are uh, gathering resources to provide to elders and school children during COVID-19. Um, so check out Seeding Sovereignty if you're looking for a way to support Indigenous communities um, in the U.S. Uh, you can donate to them uh, one time or on a rolling basis. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, I, I love how it started with the overview and then going to decolonization and actually what this means for you. I think the very first, well, the very first person that I ever heard talk about the experience of trauma for the white community was a black woman. And um, it was interesting to see her line of work. Her name is April Harder. And I remember April, I don't know if you are familiar with her work at all, um, Caitlin. She's actually a social worker, so she's not a behavior analyst, but um, that's been the the crux of her work is uh, specifically talking about racial trauma from the white lens. And so I remember when I first saw it, just thinking that that was very interesting. I mentioned it earlier as a black person. I don't feel like that's my ministry to really talk about that, but she outlined it in a way that I think was really palatable for white folks that um, kind of found their, themselves in some of the things that she was saying. Um, so when, when you mentioned it here, I was just reminded of, of her work. So if you are a listener and you're, interested i can't remember her name like her instagram name um but her real name is april harder and she is a social worker so you should be able to find her with those uh attributes but i just i just googled um her name social worker and racial trauma and it brought up a website but there's a part where it says becoming anti-racist and it's got all these different zones and it's funny i just gave a workshop where we were talking about culture of humility and being able to show up in these conversations and in the social justice toolbox that you uh, introduced me to, Denisha, they have a, a zone activity like that where it's your comfort zone, it's your learning edge, and then a danger zone. And it's very similar to something like this, where it's like if you're in your danger zone, like you're super defensive, you're not you're not able to learn in that zone, but you're also not able to learn in this comfort zone because you're over here comfortable, not worrying about anything, and you're just you know you can. Life, life as it is, I'm good to go. Um, but this is really cool. So I hope that people, and it, I guess it says the chart was adopted from um, from somebody. Oh, Ibermax, Kendi's work. Cool. Um, awesome. So I'll be checking out that. But I think, um, I really hope that people listen to this. And I think, um, you know, when I come into contact with, with certain threads in um on social media where I, I see white people saying, well, I just don't know what to do, or I'm just listening and learning right now and all these things. And, and while that's not, you know, that's important and that's good, but it's like, and then you're going to what? Because it's like, now we're stuck in this space of like, okay, now listening and learning is comfortable, but there's no action. And, and how do you move from one space to the next? It's They're still like, in order to do action with discomfort, I think a lot of the things that you talked about um, and act does provide a great, um, uh, avenue to kind of deal with a lot of those things that are very valid, you know, that show up, um, but in a way that uh, won't continue to cause more harm, but can 
focus on the impact that you can have moving forward. But I think people get stuck in that shame cycle or they get wrapped up in their own emotions and they don't know how to move forward with all of that because they've never had to experience a lot of that, you know, like, um, it's not that they haven't had to experience that, but in this context, they've never been confronted with, um, their identity causing other people pain and suffering. And what now, what am I going to do when I've been exposed to all of this? And, um, so I think this will be, I'm excited to share this. Just drop it in the comments, a little gem. Here you go. And I think there's so much value in that because it comes down to the little small behaviors. I mean, we, and I know we're, we're talking about colonization in the term that you use. Let me think of it. It was common sense. Yeah. Settler you know, common sense. Settler common sense. So for a person, I can, you know, extend some empathy um, and understanding of humanity for a person who engages in behaviors. They are common sense, right? They are very um, uh, second nature, learn, learning history, right? It's a reinforcement history with them. So you're likely to repeat them and they're part of your day-to-day life. So then when you start being corrected or called out, I can, I can see the, I can't do anything right or darn like something else again, here we go again. And I can see the aversive nature of that, but also right. The, the strengthening aspect and how that is useful for the long-term change. But a lot of people turn away from that. Like, Oh, this person just corrected me. And I think about the woman from the color purple. Um, Oh, what's her name? But it's like the, I was nice to you people, right? And like you had these great um, intentions and then someone corrects you and you're like, but I was your ally. Um, So I definitely see value in this work for uh, white folks to continue. If you're going to center yourselves, center the work that you need to be doing on yourselves, right? So I'm, I'm for it. I'm for that component of it, the the action. That's so helpful, though. Seriously, like th- that word right there. Like, say that again for everybody. Like, instead <laughs> of centering your feelings, you know, like say it again. It's helpful. Ah, if you're gonna center, <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure. I wanted to highlight that everybody needs to hear this because it's not that you can't center yourself. Right. If you're going to center yourself, make sure that you are centering your actions. Um, And so I think that that's important. And we talk about function based behavior, like the functional behaviors, um, being able to recognize why you're doing what you're doing, um, noticing those behaviors. Once again, for people who take up platforms and speak very eloquently about the work and speak very eloquently about wanting to help and be an ally and an activist um, and yet are not actually um, engaging the work, you must consider the function, right? And so, um, so yeah, I don't mind white folks centering themselves or learning histories for themselves and then doing that, doing the work around that. I think something that I saw, Denisha, you talking about on social media um, recently that was from a a presentation that you did was like um, something to the effect of, you know, stay uh, not necessarily out of my community, but do the work in your own community. And I think that's something that speaks to what you were just talking about in the sense that 
if we are wanting to talk to the community at large, we need to be talking to our own community and centering the work that we can collectively do together. And when we pull ideas for that work, where we pull from are the perspectives of those that have been exploited and oppressed and incorporating that into our work. I think that is what has been um, my learning experience throughout the last, you know, however many years. Um, and the, the biggest thing that I've taken away from it is that, okay, it's time for me to turn to my own community and do the work within my own community and share my experience in my own community so that other people can learn that this experience is normal. I don't want to say normal, typical, I guess I should say, right? It is typical for white people to come into contact with racist rhetoric. It's everywhere. Everybody comes into contact with it. So I think that this show is wrapping up and I'm glad that you already gave a bit of homework. So um, for those, um, please follow Seeding Sovereignty and and also go, we're going to put in our show notes, all the references and resources that Caitlin gave you on this show. And so with that, thank you so much, Caitlin, for joining us. Thank you both so much for this opportunity. I am uh, grateful for any opportunity to talk about um, the type of types of approaches that white people can take to this work and tools that they can use to cope with the discomfort. Awesome. We want to have you back for sure. The capitalism thing. I would love to do that. Yes. Okay. Well, as always, thank you all for being beautiful humans with us. We'll see you next time. It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Having that be very... Uh, blatant and descriptive about the things that you're not going to discriminate against an employee about instead of just copying and pasting it from something else uh, and being like, yeah, this is a good enough discrimination policy um, really did make a difference in the companies that I chose to apply to knowing that if, if they weren't going to hire me, it wasn't because of X, Y, and Z. It was because of something else that, you know, is a completely valid reason to not hire me compared to something that is I personally feel is not a, a valid and or should be legal thing to discriminate against somebody about. <laughs> so, I'm so sorry you had to comb your dreads out. That's that's that. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, it breaks my heart. Like, just kind of watching the news and and seeing yeah. it. But I've never, you know had to just speak to someone who actually had to do that and it's and it was definitely like it was it was still a choice of mine but also i 
it'd be I great understand. if I didn't have to make that choice. Um, yes. I do miss them. Right. They're coming back. They looked great. That's right. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, so it, it it was still a choice that I made. Um, there was no specific company or anything that somebody specifically said that made me feel that way. Um, but just with the current climate and um, me being a new um, potential BCBA contingent on me passing the exam, um, I didn't really want that to be something that could be held against me. And so I understand also that that's my own way of thinking, but statistically and with um, uh, hair and quote unquote hygiene, as we can talk about how locks are a completely appropriate form of expression and hairstyle on an, its own podcast. Um, <laughs> but that being sometimes discriminated against as a hygiene uh, policy um, just led me to kind of want to avoid that was that's one of the few things that I personally feel like I had control over when it came to um, my identity and my expression um, and so that was something that I chose to take a safer road on um, but uh, I wouldn't say I necessarily regret it but they're definitely coming back so <laughs> you know, I mean I'm I hear a lot in that right and you know of course, if you come from, you know, marginalized communities, there are a lot of rules that you've been taught about yourself, too, and, and that you adhere to. But then we also, you know, have talked on the show about choices anyway, and that even not all the choices that you have in front of you are actually free choices. Um, and so, you know, there's a little bit of that complexity in there because, yes, you made this choice, but up under what conditions did you have to make this choice or either up under what conditions did you learn that you had to make that choice and think about it in the sense of what we give our clients choices sometimes and they're you know and we're like do you want the red or the blue and they're like no i want the green it's like but these are your choices right um, mm -hmm. and so you know considering it just in, in that way and you all talked about like masking and you somebody could dial that back and say, I made the choice to mask, but why did you have to make that choice to mask in the first place? Why do you have to vary your behavior in one situation versus another? There's a reason for that, right? Um, and so, yes, I am too in agreement with Kiyomi. I am sad that you felt like you had to make that choice to cut your hair. And I also, as a, a fellow Black person, understand that, um, you know, we, the term mask is used we cold switch, we have to shift our behaviors, uh, the way that we speak, the way that we dress and the way, you know, our hairstyles are in the larger world. So that definitely is something that resonates with me as well. But to get back to topic, because we came all the way off. <laughs> um, but thank you for bringing that up. We, we were talking about solutions. And I just want to give us either, you know, as we try to close out the show, Either if someone has, you know, more solutions or things that they would like other people in our field to know, um, either about your experience or just about how we can become more inclusive of everybody within the field, um, you can take us out with that. So tell us what you want the listeners to know. Not a heavy question or anything. Was it? Was yeah. it a heavy question? I'm sorry. I do this all the time, run on questions, like answer one, two, and three. <laughs> um, I think, just to make sure I got this question right, so something that we want, like, the field to know in general, but also kind of pertaining to, like, neurodiversity among, like, staff more so than, like, clients, but also still clients, and... You know what? 
this show is yours. Just tell us, we're about to take the show out. So if there's something that you wanted to say tonight on this show that you didn't get an opportunity to, let's whatever that may be, just go ahead and take us out with that. Forget the questions that I just asked. <laughs> um, I think, and this, my experience on the show, which has been great, um, I think it's just kind of reaffirmed my belief that some of the things we do to express ourselves or, um, yeah, so even just things we do to express ourselves, things we wear, obviously what you wear is usually a form of self-expression, but even the things that we do as neurodiverse people that may be atypical to people that don't have the same label as us are still a form of self-expression. And I don't know the textbook ver uh, definition of culture, but I do identify with some of the things that I do. Like they are definitely a part of me and how I express myself. And so though they may seem abnormal or atypical to other people, they have value with me. Um, and so not necessarily everything I do has to be justified with a reason for somebody else. Um, and I think we, like, I try to carry on that same thought when I enter um, other people's homes is to go in, think that um, beyond what function does this behavior serve, but also what does that behavior mean to somebody? Um, uh, and I think that's something that I try to also take outside of work. Like, the meaning of something's kind of a deeper thought before we just jump to, oh, that's different, um, is something that I've definitely been trying to incorporate into my life more recently. So I agree. <laughs> I would, I wish that we can create a community, a society where we could just all be ourselves. We don't have to mask. I mean, just, Throughout this podcast, I'm like, wow, have I ever taken my mask off? Or is there an individual where I just don't have to wear my mask? Like, hey, this is what you get. And I can just probably think of like maybe two people and one of those are my therapists. So I don't think that's too good. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would love to see a society where people can be themselves and not be judged because it's what society says is not the norm like what is the norm and I think we're a lot more alike than we are different and yes um, if you're if you're code switching um, or if you're masking it's a different population talking about the same thing and I think that I would love to keep moving the field forward and making um, everything accessible for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I love I love just the conversation around accessibility too. Um, and I think, uh, and I still struggle to do it in not a weird or creepy way. Um, in the sense that like I have some friends that use wheelchairs, I have some deaf friends, and I, I would love to include people that have differences in my life, specifically differences that I've honestly never had to think about. Um, and I feel like once I have more of those people that have those differences in my life, um, it does just help me think a lot better uh, in how to 
um, accommodate and help those people. And also, like, it makes me very aware of certain problems that I've never had to face. Um, I learned the other day that when snowplows come by, not the other day, this past winter, um, when snowplows come by, they don't actually, they just dump all the snow, like, right on the crosswalk. And my friend um, who uses a wheelchair uh, and commutes to work, he then cannot, like, actually cross the street because he can go down the sidewalk, but he can't then go from the sidewalk across the street Um, and the city actually has no obligation to shovel that Uh, and so just things like that that I honestly never thought about